0: And thank you for listening to Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Jewish Space Lasers by Mike Rothschild. It was first broadcast live on Thursday, 25th of October, 2023. A video of this and many of the recordings hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast. And if you would like to support what we do, you can join our Patreon. Find us at Patreon, Skeptics in the Pub Online.
1: Uh, Everybody, I'm sure, is throwing uh, clapping emojis and other such celebratory things in the chat. (laughs) Uh, Mike, welcome back to Skeptics in the Pub Online. It's great to have
2: you back. Uh, It's great to be back. This was so much fun last time. I'm really
1: excited. Well, I, I'm very excited because I I've, I read the book. I thought it was absolutely fascinating um, and uh, a really in-depth kind of look at how we got to this place where the Rothschild name is so synonymous for negative reasons with conspiracy theory for, for work not of their own doing. So I guess um, if we were to talk about that, my opening question really is why this book and why now at this point in history?
2: Well, I've... Uh you know, having the last name Rothschild and debunking conspiracy theories, uh, the comments really started pretty much right away. Uh, You know, a Rothschild debunking conspiracy theories. How stupid (laughs) do they think we are? Uh, The matrix must be broken. Unplug the simulation. But, you know, this name has been fodder for myths, tropes, hoaxes, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, outright hate for two centuries now. And I really wanted to know why this name? Why is it this name over and over? There are a lot of historically wealthy Jewish families. There are the Guggenheims, there are the Sassoons, there are many, many others. Why this name? Um, and of course, my connection to it is is part of it, but it's also just anything that has this many myths around it, there is going to be a truth to it that is probably a lot more interesting than the myths. And in diving into that, I found a lot of really interesting history, really interesting cultural nuggets that are not talked about very much because we spend so much time on the, they own all the central banks and fund both sides of every war and have $500 trillion. That's not that interesting to me. The really interesting stuff is the actual history that I really spend a lot of time talking about in the book.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I definitely want to get to that. But I think before we look at the Rothschilds in particular, I want to start a little bit broader than that to ask why is it jews that get targeted why is it jewish people throughout history that have been targeted by society for these myths around you know domination of the uh, of, of politics and and finance and
2: these shady figures behind conspiracy theories why sure. why jews so the 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 myth of jews and money is actually a lot older than the myth of jews using that money to control everything that really happens at the beginning of the 20th century but for Many, many centuries before that, going well back into maybe the eleven or twelve hundreds, Jews were linked with money because Jewish communities had access to wealth that they were able to lend at interest. And uh, Catholic canon law essentially made usury, which was lending money at too high an interest rate, essentially a crime that was equal to heresy or murder. It was one of the worst things that you can do. At the same time, these communities, needed money these these rulers these you know these princes these kings the pope needed money to build their giant churches to equip their armies to build their palaces so when they needed that money they went to the jewish community and in fact a lot of european royalty had what was called a court banker or a court jew on their staff essentially a jewish member of their entourage who was able to go to the Jewish community and borrow this money for their ruler. So you had this linking between Jews and wealth. Jews sort of, they had access to it. They knew how to get it, but they were also too wealthy. They, mm-hmm. they had too much money. They had too much power. So you had this sort of very strange dichotomy where Jewish communities had wealth that the ruler or the church needed, but they also had too much of it. And they were able to lend it at interest but sometimes that interest rate was too high and whoever made those rules of what was too much what was too high essentially had the the jewish community at their beck and call and it went bad for a lot of these court jews many times in history now the idea of jews kind of using that wealth for world domination that really starts in the 20th century with the protocols of the elders of zion and of course this is the uh the russian document that first appeared in Russia in 1903 was translated uh, into English and into German and Arabic into many, many other languages in the 1920s. And it posited that, that there was this group of the elders of Zion who were uh, plotting in secret to dominate the world and impose their will on Christendom. Of course, almost as soon as the protocols were translated, it was revealed as a hoax. But for many of the believers in the protocols. The fact that they that they weren't real didn't really matter because the ideas in them oh those we know are real so so again mm. you have that dichotomy of we're build we're basing this entire conspiracy theory off this document we know is fake but it doesn't matter that it's fake because we want to believe the conspiracy is real
1: yeah yeah and I, and I, I guess at that time when the the the, you know, the aristocracy, the royalty were borrowing money from from Jewish people. I guess that kind of would have simmered a level of resentment that these people who are these societies that are and cultures that are othered in the mainstream society because of their religion and the race and things like that, and, and seen as outsiders, uh, still holding the the purse strings because they have the money. So, I, how much of it comes from that resentment that would have built up? Do you think? I think that's something you touch on a little in the book.
2: Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of resentment. There was a lot of suspicion. the 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 Jewish communities of the Middle Ages were very much an outgroup. They dressed differently. They had different customs. They wore their hair differently. Different dietary laws. So, automatically, they were placed outside of sort of mainstream Christian society. And they had this money that the community really needed and that they often shared with other people in their community, other co-religionists. So there was a, an element of suspicion. There was an element of distrust. There was definitely resentment. And you could see that when a ruler died, their court Jew was almost always regarded with suspicion. And of course, the most famous uh, uh, one of these was uh, Joseph Suss Oppenheimer, uh, who was the court Jew to the Duke of Württemberg. Uh, Württemberg, I guess I should pronounce it in the, the German way. Uh, when his patron died, uh, Sus was essentially uh, accused of uh, all sorts of sexual crimes and impropriety. And he was tried. He was immediately found guilty and he was tortured to death. Mm-hmm. So uh, and of course, this story would be used again and again as anti-Jewish propaganda, an example of the depravity of Jewish wealth and why these people could never be trusted Despite the fact that uh, a lot of these communities really relied on their wealth.
1: yeah yeah and I guess in, and in, so we have in that in that set of circumstances we have um, the the Rothschild's families uh, coming up and, and uh, coming into wealth. So for people who only know the world the name Rothschild well from your book and from your your work obviously, but also from the conspiracy theories around the more famous family, um, they may not know the actual story of the Rothschilds. So who were they and how did they become this uh, incredibly wealthy, target, essentially.
2: Sure. So Mayor Amschel Rothschild was the sort of the patriarch of the modern iteration of the Rothschild family, and he had actually been a rabbinical student until both of his parents died. I think it was smallpox, and he had to move back to Frankfurt. Uh, He, along with about 3,000 other Jews, lived in the Jewish ghetto, the the Judengast, the Jews' lane. It was this tiny little cramped-in community that was basically a ghetto. And in that community, you had a number of very small-time merchants. You had Textile dealers, you had uh, money changers, because all of the states of the Holy Roman Empire used different currency. Somebody had to switch out one currency for another and they would take a fee. Well, they did it. So you had a number of small time Jewish bankers who did this. And Mayer worked his way up to becoming the court Jew to the Crown Prince of Hesse. This was one of the states of the Holy Roman Empire. And as such, he was able to travel all around the what would now be called Germany. He was able to build a number of connections in his business. His first son, Amschel, joined his business. And by the time the late 1700s came and the Napoleonic War started, Uh, Mayer had essentially uh, positioned himself as as one of the more powerful German-Jewish bankers in this area. As such, he was able to get access to the fortune of the Elector of Hesse. Now, the Elector was one of the figures who uh, elected the Holy Roman Emperor. And, of course, this is at the very tail end of the Holy Roman Empire. It would fall apart in the early 1800s. But the Elector of Hesse had an enormous amount of money, much of which he made through the lending of mercenaries, the Hessians, that are mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, the foreign mercenaries who fought on the British side. So he had a huge amount of money that he needed to hide from Napoleon's forces. He enlisted Mayer and Amshell to do this. And they came up with this system which was to essentially move this money around from Europe to England and back. Uh, to essentially fund the effort against Napoleon. So this, this culminates in the Battle of Waterloo. The Rothschilds have been funding the forces of Wellington. And of course, that turns into one of the great Rothschild myths was the myth that Nathan Rothschild, who was the third son of Mayer, had advanced knowledge of the outcome of the battle, used that to make enough money to take control of the British Empire. But it starts with the money from the old man, as they call him, the Elector of Hesse, that the Rothschilds are able to essentially turn into this great family fortune. Mm.
1: And and that story of, of Nathan and uh, Waterloo um, in in the book uh, that's uh, that's a really fascinating thing to read through, not just because of the the way in which it's um, been built into this myth, but also the the, the many variants of it that seem to just change interchangeably depending on who's telling the story. Uh, there's carrier pigeons, there's uh, threatened <laughs> yes. sailors, there's big storms. So could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that story, but also the work that you did to try and figure out what actually happened and which parts of it were just kind of fabrication embellishment?
2: Yeah, so there there is the the sort of foundational myth about the Rothschilds. And this myth doesn't really emerge until about 30 years after the Battle of Waterloo. And that it was Nathan Rothschild was there. He, he wasn't just, you know, helping to fund uh wellington's forces he was actually at the battle and he watched it happening he you know some accounts say he was so close he could smell the cannon smoke and you know see the the anguish on the faces of the the wounded soldiers and seeing that napoleon was losing the battle he got on his steed he rode across belgium in, in the middle of the night got to the channel port of ostend bribed a terrified sailor to take him across the English Channel during a -a once-in-a-century storm. These are all details that are uh, found in various biographies of the family going from about the mid-1800s to the late 1900s, really. Mm. These these sort of absolutely ridiculously cinematic details. According to some of the original stories, Nathan gets to the London Stock Exchange. He's exhausted. He's unkempt. He slumps against his favorite pillar at the exchange. The other bankers see how how exhausted and defeated he looks. They assume that it means Napoleon has won the battle. They start selling their stocks. Meanwhile, of course, Nathan knows what's happened, and he's secretly motioning his agents to buy up all all the sold stocks at depressed prices. Then the news of the actual outcome of Napoleon's defeat comes in. Those stocks skyrocket in value, and Nathan immediately becomes the richest man in the British Empire. Yeah. Now, none of that happened. That, that is an <laughs> entirely uh, post hoc fabrication. Uh, we know now that we don't know exactly how much money Nathan made off the battle, but it was very little. Uh, because of just sort of how the calendar would have worked and who actually brought the news over. There's been a lot of scholarship in the last decade or so sort of unpacking how all of this happened. And it's it's a very complicated story. There's a, a guy who was basically vacationing in Belgium who's, who got the news and was able to get a newspaper over. Nathan probably was among the first to get the news, but he was not the first. And he didn't do anything with the news because by the time he got the news, the London Stock Exchange had already opened. So there, there are very historical things at play here, but there's also a myth that would be sort of repurposed and reimagined. There's later iterations of it that Nathan wasn't at the battle, but he had a courier named Rothworth, who was at the battle, um, there, there's a 1934 Hollywood film of, of the uh, sort of Nathan getting the news of Waterloo, and there's a Nazi version of that film, and Rothworth is in both those films, and in one, he's kind of an eager young go-getter. In the Nazi version, he's like a hapless drunk. I mean, there's this, all these different versions of this story. But at the core of it, it's just that the Rothschilds made a huge amount of money off the Napoleonic Wars. Because they were lending gold, they were selling bonds, they were equipping these armies, and they were taking a percentage of everything. But this idea that in sort of one swift stroke, Nathan took control of the British Empire, is just completely ridiculous.
1: Yeah, and and reading in the the book, it's it's fascinating how they're talking about how they embellish the amount Mm. that he made, that he bought, the bank that he bought out of Britain. I also love the idea that his plan was to like get all the way over from Belgium across these various different you know, trains and automobiles of his day <laughs> yeah and then to just rely entirely on his acting chops to be
2: he doesn't even announce anything like he just goes in there and just like slumps over and just yeah. everyone knows he doesn't have to say anything it's yeah. it's so it's like a classic conspiracy theory in that it relies on all of these things going exactly right when we know that Things like that never go exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one thing you, you mentioned
1: in there about how they, they really made their money by you know, funding some of the, the wars and funding the, the efforts against Napoleon. This sort of comes down in a way to the idea that lots of lies and even some conspiracy theories are based on ideas that have got a kernel of truth that's been sort of distorted and twisted into something kind of grotesque. So the idea that the Rothschild family at this point were funding a side of the war and, and i think you even write about there were some later wars that they actually en- ended up funding both sides on that war, but not through nefarious right uh, they would have pastimates. you
2: know during the franco-prussian war they had interest they, i mean there was a rothschild house in france you know in paris they had an enormous investment in prussia you because they were so wealthy and because they had invested so much and in so many different nations, it was sort of inevitable that their interests would be pitted against each other. But it wasn't just a nefarious plan; it was the constant warring in Europe at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah everyone was at each other's throats, and they happened to be the the right. places where the money money lived. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so you you mentioned that this this Nathan story, the Waterloo story, which is kind of the foundational kind of one of the foundational myths of the Rothschild, that didn't really emerge until thirty or forty or how many years after. Um, where did those stories start to emerge from, and, and what were the kind
2: of forces that were driving these? these twisted interpretations. Sure. So the, that Waterloo story really emerges in about 1846, and that is 30 years after the battle. That's 10 years after Nathan's died, so he can't dispute the story. Mm. And these stories start to come out in the sort of socialist fervor of late 1840s Paris. You know, this was the lead up to the revolutions of 1848, where you had these, these socialist revolutions all across Europe, many of which fizzled out. But there was a, a great deal of anti-wealth sentiment and anti-wealth sentiment and anti-Semitism are completely bound up in each other. And a lot of this was directed at the Rothschilds be- simply because they were so visible. They had their palaces. They had their artworks. Their name was on a lot of things. People knew who they were. So in 1846, you have a pamphlet that appears written under the pen name of Satan called The Curious and Edifying History of James I, King of the Jews. And this is James de Rothschild, another one of Mayer's sons who was based in Paris at this point. And after Nathan's death, sort of became, became the uh, the head of the family. And James had really set his sights on expanding the railroads, really on linking all of Europe together through his railroads. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, some of these names are still well known in France. The Nord Line was established by James de Rothschild. And a few months before this pamphlet comes out, there was a crash on one of the Nordline trains. And it's in this little town called Phampeau. It's north of Paris. Uh, and something like uh, between 15 to 20 people die. I mean, it's certainly terrible. And the, the press at the time writes about it in all of these horribly graphic and lurid details. But it was not the worst train crash in French history. It, it, you know, it, There were other crashes that were worse, mm-hmm. except this one was linked to the Rothschilds. So this pamphlet comes out and it makes these two accusations. The one is the Waterloo myth. The other is that James had built these railroads that were cheap. They were shoddy. He didn't care about the life of ordinary Frenchmen. He only wanted to make money. He wouldn't even um, stop the trains running after the crash. It makes all of these these accusations. And so these two myths put together really show the Rothschilds as, as, as sort of greedy, and also as these string pullers. And it really kind of cements the dual myth of the Rothschilds, that they are incredibly greedy and incredibly powerful. So this pamphlet kicks off this pamphlet war in Paris. There are response pamphlets that are pro-Rothschild. There are responses to the responses that are anti-Rothschild. There are pamphlets in uh, other parts of Europe. And of course, this gets tied up with a, a blood libel panic that's going on at the time called the Damascus Affair which is a which is a real incident where a uh, Capuchin friar in Damascus and his Muslim helper disappear. And the rumor is that they were kidnapped and ritually murdered in a blood libel by the local Jews. And the Rothschilds get dragged into that. They they help try to diffuse it. So you have this spike of anti-Semitism based around the Damascus affair. You have this spike in anti-wealth sentiment that's going on just in general with the growing socialist movements. And it sparks a a powder keg that explodes with the Rothschilds as essentially as the victims.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, if we if we move sort of forward in time, we can get into the twentieth century. We've already touched on the, the the protocols and not just their uh, emergence from Russian propaganda, but obviously this was picked up quite heavily by uh, Henry Ford and spread around right. America. So, is this where we start to see myths around the Rothschilds start to come to America? Because I, I understand they weren't really. American, they weren't really related to America or weren't really, weren't really
2: involved with America too much by that point. Right. The Rothschilds never emigrated to the United States. They felt it was too much of a backwater. They didn't understand the differences between federal law and state law. It, it, they just didn't grasp the opportunity that that was in the United States. Hmm. So Rothschild myths really came with the Jewish diaspora. So you had people fleeing Eastern Europe who carried the name Rothschild with them as this beacon of of wealth and hope and aspiration. And of course, those myths uh, really start to get going in the U.S. around the Civil War because the Rothschild's chief agent in New York, a a, a sort of Americanized German Jew named August Belmont, um, was a Democrat. And of course, Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. And so there were all of these op-eds and stories and union papers of the, you know the Rothschilds control the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party controls uh, George McClellan, who was Lincoln's electoral opponent in 1864. So you have this very uncomfortable linking of the Rothschilds and the Confederacy. Now the Rothschilds never funded the Confederacy. They didn't get involved in the Civil War at all. But this idea that the Rothschilds were manipulating this, they were funding the South, they were funding both sides, they were trying to divide the, the country, you know, they would get a, they were gonna give the north to Canada and the South to France. I mean, all of this ridiculousness really starts to show up in conspiracy theories in the beginning of the twentieth century. So you have this idea that the Rothschilds were manipulating u s. political affairs, which really takes off in the time between the two wars, which, of course, is this hideously anti-Semitic time when isolationism and the America first movement really really springs up, and they want to keep America out of what's seen as another Jewish war in Europe. So all of these things mix together, and they again, are using the Rothschilds as a focal point because by this point, there is a there's an industry of myths about the family. There's now, we're now, you know, 80 years from the Satan pamphlet, and now these conspiracy theories have become so prevalent that it, essentially people just, like now, know the name Rothschild because of the myths, not because of anything the family did, but because of what people have said the family did.
1: And to what degree do you think the, the name became not just a useful focal point for uh, anti-Jewish sentiment, but also kind of a cover For those who wanted to express anti-Jewish sentiment without it seeming against Jews in particular Jews in general. So it's yeah, it's the idea of I'm not against Jews. I'm against these people who are doing this particular thing. But what you're saying is
2: anti-Semitic tropes. Absolutely. And it, it became very clear that the Rothschilds were a very convenient target for people who were extremely anti-Semitic but did not want to seem like they were extremely anti semitic mm. you could blame jewish wealth jewish bankers uh you know london financiers the insiders the hidden hand you know whatever name you, you want to give them of course we're seeing that even now you know with groups like the new world order and the illuminati the trilateral commission when people sort of throw those terms around what they mean are wealthy Jewish families who are controlling things and the Rothschilds are seen as the essentially the controllers of the controllers
1: yeah and, and what what I found particularly galling uh, reading reading about it was that these kind of myths continued through the war um, about you know the, the Rothschilds are, are funding the war the Rothschilds are sitting in the lap of luxury watching the the, the, the decimation of Europe at a time when actually the Rothschilds were, huge victims of what was going on yep. in, in Germany and Austria and, and the places at the time.
2: Yeah, you have a, you have a lot of uh, pro-fascist writing during the war, conspiracy theorist writing immediately after the war that claims that the Rothschilds are orchestrating all of this, that they're helping fund Hitler, that they're, you know, what I think is Gary Allen in dare Call It Conspiracy in the 70s talks about mm-hmm. the Rothschilds and the Warburgs, you know, sitting in their luxury Paris hotels, watching all of the carnage. In reality the rothschilds were on the run the way every other jew was um many of them had to escape with their lives they you know they took basically what they could carry with them several ex members of the extended rothschild family did die during the holocaust the austrian branch of the rothschild family was essentially destroyed it was never rebuilt uh their palaces were were looted their artworks were stolen i mean it's certainly you know, sort of, as we call it now, first world problems, like, oh, my five palaces were looted by the Nazis. But it took the family a long time to get a lot of this property back. And some of it, they never got back.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do uh, have to confess, reading that, that part of the book, I, seeing the way that that uh, property was stolen, things was obviously uh, awful. There was a part of me that when I read the line about how they lost uh, an area of land the size of Manhattan, yeah. there was a small part of me that thought no one should own an area of land the size of Manhattan. <laughs> I, oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> But that's not uh, not excusing anything that went on. Of course, it was just sure. a, a moment there. Um, talking about the what, what I the part that I found really fascinating about the the way in which um, the Nazis overtly took on the the antisemitic uh, tropes that were emerging from America, they used the, the protocols and sort of became ex, made a, a conscious choice to make films that were explicitly antisemitic. Um, I thought that was really interesting, and also the the use of the the protocols. There was something you you wrote that that I'd never heard before, but I thought was really, really fascinating, was that they started to pump out anti-Semitic propaganda in Arabic in order to drive anti-Semitism in Muslim populations, too.
2: Yeah, there the the Nazis uh, absolutely exploited the, the Rothschild myth as part of their propaganda. Uh, you know, we see it really bloom in in 1940 with all, with this series of films that are released. But even in the you know earliest earliest Nazi writing, you have stuff from you know the very beginning of the of the Nazi Party, uh, 1919, 1920. Talking about, you know, the Rothschilds are going to own German wealth if we don't do something about it. Uh, you know, Hitler would reference the Rothschilds in speeches. The, uh, I think it was 1935, the Degenerate Art Exhibit by Goebbels, the Eternal Jew has these forged letters from Mayor Amschel Rothschild, uh, purporting to send his sons out to the financial capitals of Europe. Mm. And then in 1938, you have Kristallnacht and you know we we talk about how, you know, it was a turning point for the Jews of Germany and Austria. But the Nazi regime, particularly the propaganda ministry, was actually quite disappointed in the uh, apathetic response of of the German people. They really felt like the German people would rise as one and expel all of the Jews from their community. A lot of Germans just didn't care one way or another. And so the, Goebbels and and Hitler and the people around them really decided we really need to use film to kick this up a notch, to move people from just sort of suspicion and othering to the the first stirrings of what would become outright extermination. And that's where these films like The Eternal Jew, uh, The Rothschilds Shares in Waterloo, uh, another version of the Joseph Sus Oppenheimer story, these were designed to move the German people From the we don't trust the Jews to we have to get rid of the Jews. And you can really see that in some of the documentation of the time that when Hitler saw footage from the eternal Jew, these uh, staged uh, ritual slaughters being done in uh, the ghettos of Poland, which had just been conquered, Mm. Hitler was appalled. And that really starts to move the Nazi bureaucracy towards the final solution. Yeah. And that
1: that I thought was interesting that it's the the staged stuff that is uh that is kind yeah. of that was eliciting that disgust. Cause we sort of yeah. see echoes of that into modern conspiracy movements, you know, the idea of uh in QAnon and things, the, the blood libel stuff in there, sure. it's not the stuff that's actually happening, it's what you've imagined and you told each other is right. happening, and that's the stuff that kind of re-drives the fear and the disgust. Um yeah. If we move a little bit closer, I recognise I want to get through a, a bit more. So let's bring it a bit more up to date. We can look sure. at um, the way in which it, the these kind of myths then started to spread around, you know, the nascent internet forums, uh, newsletters. It seems at this point that became the the crystallising point of the of the the um, the idea of Jewish control of the, of these families' control over everything. Um, how much of the that that early internet kind of forum culture was driving and cementing these myths? Do you think?
2: Yeah, it's a huge part of it. And conspiracy theorists are really, really good at adopting new technology. Mm. You know, you go all the way back to the printing press or the duplication of color photos or early home video technology. The Internet uh, was really a boon to these people. And you can see, you know, as early as mid-1994, Usenet forums like Alt.Conspiracy are already huge. They've got hundreds of thousands of posts. This is a time when most people don't even have an email address. And you've got very, very vibrant conspiracy communities online. And of course, what are they doing? They're going after the Rothschilds. So you see the the repurposing of some of these 70s and 80s myths about the Rothschilds that find a very ready home on early Usenet groups, Yahoo groups, message boards, places like that. You know, a lot of this stuff is gone. Uh, there very, very little of that earliest, earliest uh, vestige of the Internet remains. But what you can find is full of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like this is where we started to
1: see and you know, maybe
2: well, we've seen it throughout
1: history, but we certainly see it here. That idea of um, the research that you're doing is sort of taking anything at face value that supports what you believe in. And it doesn't matter how unsourced it was. It doesn't matter if there really wasn't a, uh, a a midnight dash by Nathan. It right. didn't really matter if, uh, if if there wasn't a uh, thing thing on the deathbed sending out your your sons right. to conquer Europe. But if it agrees with you, take it on board. And that seems to be the thread that holds a lot of conspiracy theory together. Really, is this idea of like, well, I'm doing my research, which means I've found something I agree with, and I just bring it wholesale into the worldview that I'm putting together.
2: Right, it's it's. I want to believe it, and it sounds like it could be true. Therefore, it's true, and yeah. I don't care whether or not it's actually true. In fact, looking into whether it's actually true or not will um, disabuse me of some of these notions. So I'm not going to do that. And you yeah. you find that just over and over and over again with these memes and these conspiracies and these accusations against the Rothschilds. They're they're ridiculous. You know, the idea that the Rothschilds have five hundred trillion dollars in wealth. Is is ludicrous? No, no person who is like a high functioning human being should believe that that's true. But mm. many, many people do. Uh, you can find this on Twitter, on you know r slash conspiracy right now. Um, and it's it's ludicrous. It's insane.
1: Yeah, and am I right in thinking that 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 claim used to be five hundred billion, but they've added a few nods to it because
2: it's- that's as one of the one of the things I wanted to track down was that specific number. Uh, there is a book from nineteen forty called Rothschild Money Trust, uh, very obscure for a reason uh, that makes the claim that the Rothschilds had five hundred billion dollars in nineteen forty. So at some point, somebody just turned that into trillion because hey, what's more sinister than a billion dollars? Oh, a trillion dollars! Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so. I think we've kind of pieced together the the history of it here. What I think is uh, what I wanted to sort of touch on for the remainder of this, this part of the conversation before we go Mm -hmm. for a break is the, the tropes in, in conspiracism um, that are anti-Semitic. Are, are there tropes in modern conspiracism that people wouldn't realize were anti-Semitic? Are things that that are vestiges of anti-Semitism, but actually most people, when they look at it, they'd say, well, you know, in this case, you're talking about the Rothschilds, you're not talking about Jewish people in general. Are, are there other tropes like that that people should be on the lookout
2: for? Sure, and I think a lot of this stuff has been excused during history because it, 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 the purveyors of it have been able to say, well, I'm not talking about all Jews. I'm just talking about you know, the rich Jews, I'm talking about the Rothschilds, I'm talking about the Guggenheims and the Warburgs. You, you see a really interesting example of this in 1991 in Pat Robertson's book, The New World Order. Mm. Uh, now this is a New York Times bestseller, this is a huge hit. And what Robertson is doing is uh, positing essentially that there is a conspiracy between the Rothschilds and the Freemasons and the Bavarian Illuminati to essentially merge the worlds of the occult and high finance. This is a theory that Robertson takes from the British fascist author Nesta Webster in her 1920s books. Webster, in turn, is essentially rewriting the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So and like not even making any bones about it. Robertson couches it a little bit, but he is laundering the protocols for a huge audience. Now what happens with this is it nobody figures this out for the first couple of years. So finally, when it's revealed that Robertson was basically using the protocols of the elders of Zion as a secondhand source, he is uh, he's like outraged that anybody would think he's anti-Semitic. He loves Jews. The Jewish people have no greater friend than him. Uh, the, he loves the state of Israel. And of course, The Republican Party doesn't want to piss off Pat Robertson because they need the votes of the Christian coalition. Mm. So this very earnest debate goes on in in conservative Jewish journals and, you know, sort of right-leaning press of is Pat Robertson an anti-Semite? The fact is he laundered the protocols of the elders of Zion. This should not be a debate at all. But we are so, I think so many people are so bad at recognizing anti-Semitism that this became something people actually had real conversations about. Oh, did he know that he was doing it? Did did he really believe? Like that is the insidious banality of anti-Semitism. It's that it worms its way into the writings of some of America's most important pundits and religious figures and politicians, and we don't know what's happening. And when we do find out it's happening, we find ways to excuse it because we just can't wrap our minds around the fact that somebody that important would feel that way about the Jewish people.
1: Yeah. And I guess it's that thing that uh, the worst thing you can uh, do in, in society is to call someone a racist. It's slightly right. worse than actually being racist. <laughs> right. That, that, exactly. That's the, the, the name that right. they uh, they keep the, the term they keep away from. We had a, a similar thing here in, uh, in England when um, the former Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, was sharing a, a mural of, um, you know, rich uh, bankers playing a game around a table and there's there's people of color underneath holding up the uh-huh. table and all yeah. we need to do is stand up i think was was one of the the, the yeah. sort of variants on the uh on the the idea and again it was this idea of not recognizing that as anti-semitic because what you're talking about is well these are rich old men who are uh in control and are you saying there aren't rich old men in control of the world right. they definitely are and it's it's these kind of tropes are kind sure. of uh, hard to extricate sure um there's a lot of there's obviously a huge amount of conversation around anti-semitism um Over the last, I'd say, five years or or so, you know, the QAnon um, conspiracy theory sort of brought it all back into light. Do you think there is increased awareness of anti-Semitism now uh, more so than decades prior because we're better at spotting it or because the threat to Jewish people is once again at a higher point? Why are we so aware of it, do you think?
2: I, I would like to believe it's because we've gotten better at spotting it, but I don't know that we are. I mean, especially given this spasm of anti-Semitism that we're in right now, where we're seeing these classic tropes of of greed and power and control and manipulation just being repurposed over and over again. Uh, I don't know that most people are are better at spotting it or maybe it's just that we've gotten more used to it or we we've sort of, you know, there's a certain acceptability that anti-Semitism has always had in polite society. It's, mm. it's like, well, you know, no one's going to look askance at you if you blame your own personal woes or the, the problems of the world on, you know, the Jewish banking cabal. Um, you know, people are going to sort of silently agree with that because it's still difficult for people to wrap their heads around the fact that attacking Jews as all being wealthy and powerful is anti-Semitic, even if there mm-hmm. are Jews that are wealthy and powerful. Um, there are still way more people who are not Jewish who are wealthy and powerful. Yeah.
1: And, and I guess the other thing that kind of has always acted or for a long time has acted as that cover for anti-Semitism is this um, patina of irony, this idea, you know, uh, South Park, for example, would sure. quite often have a lot of anti-Semitic jokes in there, but they would say, well, we're just being ironic. We're sure. just uh, we're just joking. It's just a joke. Don't yeah. take it so seriously.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a time when it's not. And yeah
1: exactly and then that's kind of that seeing comes that all the time, way through right? to, to to twitter and 4chan which will yeah. hide behind an ironic racism when they're actually just being sure. kind of outright uh outright racist um yeah one question i did have um do you think looking back over history did it do you think it had to be jews who ended up in this position as the on the the receiving end of these kind of myths or could in another universe that myth have built built up around a different race or religion of people
2: what, what did it have to be jews I, you know, I think given the way it all happened and some of these historical things that have been used against Jews over and over, I think there was kind of inevitable that there would be an, an out group in society that was very successful, that became the sort of scapegoat for all of that society's problems. And I think because of the these these restrictions on money lending the jews were going to be that wealthy group and i think you also have the blood libel which of course is older even than that and then the the deicide accusation the accusation that jews killed jesus christ um because that accusation is so built into certain sects of christianity and evangelicalism i think it was sort of always going to be the jews because you know there aren't ancient romans anymore but there are still jews yeah
1: and you, you mentioned that, you know, it's so built into to Christianity and sex. It, it always tr- it always strikes me as quite ironic, especially from an American perspective, that they're um, spreading these ideas that there's a, a race and a religion who are uh, holding all of the power and uh, pulling the strings behind the scenes. And it, in a way, there is that. It's just it's white Christian nationalism. Right. Exactly. Like, uh, it, with it, the right. side helping of Mormonism. Yeah. You, know, you can't right. get into power really without uh, being, being uh, of those uh, persuasions.
2: Sure, absolutely, um, and and this is a group that doesn't make any effort to hide its its wealth <laughs> of power. Um, you finish the book by talking about um, the, in
1: some ways, the new Rothschilds, and you talk about George Soros and how the the stories have kind of um, started to centre on him. Do you think we're seeing a movement away from the Rothschilds being the focus? Uh, and Soros being the focus, or are we just seeing it's all part of that same? Uh, you know, the the central group has just grown slightly, and we've added one more name to the list. Like, are we seeing that
2: transition? I think we've definitely seen a transition from the Rothschilds as public enemy number one to Soros as public enemy number one. Of course, a lot of conspiracies link them together. You know, you see these cartoons that, you know, Soros is the puppet master, but the Rothschilds are the puppet master of Soros. There's always going to be some, you know, somebody else who's in charge, some, you know, string puller of string pullers. But Soros makes a very convenient 21st century Rothschilds because he's, He's very visible. He's very politically active. He's very progressive. And, and, you know, sort of all he hits all the marks. You know, he's he's really old. He speaks in this very thick accent. You know, he sometimes says things that are very easy to take out of context. Mm. And of course, he funds all of these causes that a lot of conspiracy theorists see as the encroachment of godless liberal progressivism. He's funding voting rights, he's funding drug legalization, prison reform. Um, you know, d- democratizing, cult, you know, Soviet bloc nations, which you'd think the far right would be all over, and you know, they they used to be in some ways, but that's all really changed now. So you know, Soros's visibility and his political persuasion really makes him very, very visible and a very inviting target.
0: Hmm.
1: And and I
2: guess also because, as you say, he that
1: yeah, that visibility is a big key, big key part of it because the. I don't think the average person although they know the name Rothschild could name a single Rothschild they right. couldn't give it, give you a first name. So I guess one question I had is like how did the Rothschild feel about
2: it? That's a good question. They did not uh they were, they were not involved in the book at all. I reached out to many of them to to talk to them and kind of get their side of this. How do you know how does it feel to have these these myths dragging behind you? And they just don't talk about it. And there I actually did talk to their family archivist in London, and she said that they even historically, they have not talked about any of this because they don't want to put themselves in a position to have to prove a negative. Mm. So they don't they they can't say, well, we don't have five hundred trillion dollars. And here's the proof. There's no proof they do. Mm. But the people who believe this stuff. Uh, don't want proof and they would never believe a Rothschild saying it anyway. So their stance has really been to just say nothing and, you you know, just let this stuff sort of take its course. And, uh, you know, I've had, you know, myths and conspiracy theories about me and false accusations. And, you know, it's very tempting to want to push back at all of these things. But after a while, there's so much of it. And these people want your attention. They want you to try to fight back. And so you basically just say, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to let it go and it's going to go away and they're going to move on to somebody else. Now, in the case of the Rothschilds, they really haven't. But, you know, I was sort of irritated with the family for not responding to any of this at the beginning. And then by the end of it, I really understood why, because there's nothing they can really say.
1: Yeah. And anything you do
2: say, any any words you
1: put out there, it's just more... For more more material for people to look for inconsistencies right. and, and misinterpretations right. um we're going to take a break in a moment but i just i think a nice place to end it um having uh talked about how they don't typically talk to people the rothschilds there's an example in the book where uh, one of the Rothschild family do give an interview mm. and it's not yeah. what a lot of people would expect so perhaps you could tell us that story uh because i think people would be fascinated by it
2: Sure. So in 2007, I think it was uh, David de Rothschild is the one of the British heirs uh, to the Rothschild family's sort of an adventurer and environmentalist. I believe he's dating Angeline Jolie right now. So you know he's doing OK. <laughs> he wrote a book about the danger of climate change. And somehow in, in a series of events that I, I truly wish I'd been a fly on the wall for, he ended up doing an interview with Infowars. And it's uh, Alex Jones and David Rothschild just kind of yelling at each other for 40 minutes. And David, I mean, you know, to his credit, he doesn't lose his cool. He does. He's very amused by the whole thing. You can you can almost sort of hear the smirk in his voice. And Alex is just getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And David's just not taking the bait. It's a very strange and very uncomfortable uh, 40 or 45 minutes of, of grown men just yelling. Um, it's it's fascinating.
1: Uh, great, well, Mike, uh, we're gonna take a break now. So everybody, the book is uh, Jewish Space Lasers. There's links in the chat where if you're interested, you can pick up a copy. Uh, we're also gonna ask all of your questions. Uh, so be sure to go to sitp.online forward slash ask. And in the second half, we'll be putting all of your questions to Mike Rothschild. Uh, so we will be back. Welcome back, everybody, to Skeptics in the Pub Online. I hope you're all relaxed, refreshed, and ready to put your questions uh, to our speaker this evening, Mike Rothschild, who you can see on screen here right now, who is raring to go uh, and answer anything you want to put to him. Um, So, Mike, uh, let's put the first question to you. This is from uh, As an Android uh, on Slido here. Who's asking? Uh, when it comes to Jewish space lasers, the title, which we haven't actually uh, ref- or haven't actually explained, um, was Marjorie Taylor Greene repeating an existing specific conspiracy theory uh, with the space lasers thing, or was it one that she
2: made up herself? Well, she did. She definitely didn't make it up herself. The idea that there is a uh, sp- directed energy weapon, as they call it, uh, that is being used to start forest fires for various uh, evil purposes. That's been around for a while, and we we sort of see an, another iteration of it every time there's a fire season. We saw it in 2018, 2020. We've seen it in, this year with the fires in Maui and then the fires in Canada. So that theory has been around for a while. And, you know, the interesting thing about Marjorie Taylor Greene's post is, you know, when she made that post, it was 2018. She was not a member of Congress yet. She was just a, a Georgia mom who had some questions. Mm-hmm. And, of course, her questions <laughs> revolved around, you know, what was Rothschild Inc. doing to our forests? So she, you know, comes up with this this theory that uh, then, you know, California Governor Jerry Brown and the husband of. Then Senator Dianne Feinstein and Pacific Gas and Electric were conspiring with this solar energy startup to beam energy from the sun to collection points on the earth. Oh, but they missed. And oh, isn't it convenient that that's, you know, exactly where you know California wanted to build its 70 billion dollar high speed rail boondoggle and that a, a board member of Pacific Gas and Electric was also a vice president at Rothschild Inc. And oh, we know what that means. So, you know, she never uses the the word Jewish in the post. She never says Jewish space lasers. That really came in the reporting about the post when it was discovered a few years later. Um, nobody knew about it for the first couple of years. But that idea that the Rothschilds are, are using this technology to manipulate the weather and cause forest fires, that's that's definitely not something she invented off the top of her head.
1: Yeah, and I love the idea that um, they really just wanted to clear that land so they could build on it, and then the 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 best, most seamless way to do that was to zap <laughs> the land from space. Right. <laughs> the, the most
2: the 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 most subtle, uh, non uh, non visible ways to start a giant fire. <laughs> it's yeah. It just it's one of those things that again, if you think about it at all, it it's so convoluted and so overly complicated that no one would would do that. Mm. You know, if you're going to clear the land, you'd do something else. But yeah, that's how these people think. Yeah, yeah. Um, So
1: we've got a a few questions um, all about the the situation that's in the Middle East right now. Um, So um, Garnet asks, uh, with the the events in Israel and Gaza these past couple of weeks, has there been a surge in anti-Jewish sentiment online, or is one expected?
2: Well, it's definitely happened. There, there's been an enormous surge in in anti-Semitism, and also in the kind of lazy tropes that we've seen a lot of in the media over the past few generations. You know, the the easy uh, conflating of Jews and Israel, the assumption that all American Jews or all Western Jews. Uh, you know, are secret, you know, secretly support Israel and aren't 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 loyal to their country of origin. That all Jews agree with each other about everything. And and I would say, you know, do you think all Jews agree with each other about everything? Just go out to dinner with three Jewish people, and very soon you are going to realize that Jews, you know, are, are individuals just like everybody else. And plenty of American Jews uh, do not support the Netanyahu government at all. Uh, and at the same time, I, I know a lot of Jewish people are very troubled by some of the rhetoric that's being used by, by the idea that that the Jewish state needs to be annihilated in order for there to be peace in the Middle East. I mean, I, th- I think that's a very anti-Semitic idea and it doesn't revolve around Israel and Jews being the same thing. But it does acknowledge that there is a Jewish state because for millennia, Jews have not been welcomed in a mm-hmm. lot of the countries that they've lived in. And. There's a lot of history there that is not easily boiled down to a, a, a pithy slogan. Yeah, and it's it's that thing, I guess, of collective responsibility, which doesn't yeah.
1: happen when there's a, an atrocity of Christians. Right, exactly. Happening Christians, but I know here in the UK there were um, Jewish schools in London that were vandalized and targeted with mm-hmm. paint. Uh, yeah. And I talked to a friend about it, and they made the point of the person who's vandalizing that what do they even think is the goal there i mean that 10 right. year old going to school probably doesn't have a lot of impact on netanyahu's home yeah. like domestic policy yeah, and exactly. nobody's gonna say well i i that swastika that i saw painted on a, a school dog made some really good points you know it's not persuading anybody right but,
2: right yeah. and and what do my you know german american relatives whose great 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 grandfathers you know what responsibility do they bear in, in the Holocaust? I mean, people just don't talk like that, except yeah, yeah. with Jews.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: Serdar asks,
1: in the Middle East, uh, conspiracies around wealthy Jewish families often intertwined with Israel and Zionism. Is that the same with Rothschild conspiracy theories? What's their role in Israel and Zionist kind of ideas there?
2: Well, the Rothschilds are, are an interesting story in terms of Zionism, because you have the, you know the Balfour Declaration, was essentially, uh, uh, you know, spearheaded by one of the Rothschilds. You know, uh, Theodore Herzl's letter was an address to the Rothschilds, but the Rothschilds were not united about Zionism. There were many members of the family who didn't see the need for a Jewish state, who felt like it would interfere too much with their own, um, you know, with their own business, who who just didn't think it was a workable possibility. So even the Rothschilds really weren't united on the need or the feasibility for a Jewish state. So the idea that the Rothschilds and Zionism are really intertwined is much more complicated than that. You know, the Rothschilds really are revered in Israel, but I think part of it is certainly Zionism, but I think also it's that the Rothschilds have really been an example to Jews around the world for the last two centuries of what is possible, of what, you know, Jewish accomplishment can really be. Um, You know, I talk about that in the book with this uh, op-ed by Eli Wiesel in 1990. Uh, written around the time that the Rothschild's musical was revived on Broadway. Uh, He writes about how, you know, growing up in the very poor, very isolated mountains of Romania, he knew the name Rothschild. It was a beacon of aspiration and of possibility and of hope. So I think for a lot of particularly Israeli Jews, that that Rothschild name is still revered because of what it represents, not so much for the political um, connotations. Yeah. And so that was
1: their that's their attitude to, to Israel. But in terms of conspiracy theory, the uh, Nick G is asking, uh, is there a lot of conspiracy that does explicitly try to tie the Rothschild to Israel?
2: Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. You you have um, the same tropes, really. The idea that the Rothschilds are sort of the puppet masters and controlling everything. There's a, a Syrian miniseries that I write about in the book. It's essentially translated as the diaspora. And one of these, it's, you know, completely adapted from the protocols of the elders of Zion. And one of these scenes is this very stereotypical version of Mayor Amschel Rothschild on his deathbed, commanding his sons to go out into the world and enslave the Christians and the Muslims. And it's just, it's the same stuff, but it's being broadcast to countries where, you know, Jews have like a 0% favorability rating. So it finds a much more uh, willing audience in a lot of these
1: countries yeah, and that was something that I, I thought was uh, really fascinating from the book you pointed out that um the protocols have been translated into Arabic more than pretty much any other yeah. language. It's really sort of taken hold in the, in those parts of the world.
2: Yeah. yeah, um, the protocols are hugely, hugely popular in the Arabic world.
1: Yeah. And and looking at uh, these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories from around the world, um, we've we touched on the Middle East. What about other parts of the world where Jewish people are less likely to have, uh, have, have set up uh, communities there? Do they still have the same elements of
2: these types of ideas, these types of conspiracy theories? Oh, absolutely. There are anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in countries that have no real Jewish population. In mm-hmm. the book, I write about the, uh, the anti-Semitism and sort of weird Jewish fetishizing in Japan in the 70s. Uh, you had these best-selling books about how if you can understand Judea, you can understand Japan and all of these other things. And in China, there was a, a very, very popular series of books called Currency Wars. The first one that came out, I think, in, I want to say it was 2009, that was talking about the Asian financial crisis of a couple of years earlier and blaming it on the Rothschilds. Um, talking about how the Rothschilds own trillions of dollars in in wealth and control the destiny of nations. It's the same thing that you would see in anti-federal reserve books of the 1950s and 60s in the US. It's just sort of repurposed for a different audience.
1: Mm. Um, there's an anonymous question here asking, of all the crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that you've come across in your research in this area, uh, what's the craziest
2: or the most unusual sort of details that you've uh, you've discovered? I really enjoy, well, enjoy maybe isn't the right word, but um, uh, writing about the ravings of this exiled Russian count uh, named Arthur Cherup Spritovich. Hmm. He was this uh, monarchist who who fled Russia during the revolution and he went to Staten Island and he wanted to start a uh, pan uh, pan Slavic nation uh, through the United Gentiles League. And this guy wrote a book called The Secret World Governments in the the mid-20s that really actually kind of is a harbinger for a lot of the the popularity of the conspiracy theories that would grow in the 30s and 40s. You know, the Jews are are world dominators and the Rothschilds uh, control hundreds of billions of dollars and are pitting all of the nations against each other. This guy eventually uh, concocted this theory that Benjamin Disraeli met with two of the Rothschild heirs at a wedding in the 1850s and and hatched a plot to use slavery as an excuse to divide the United States and that, you know, one Rothschild could get the north and one Rothschild would get the south. And it has these sort of very sort of uh, cinematic touches of these speeches and secret invasions and like all this crap. And I'd never heard of this guy. His writing really has no real imprint in the West, but I think you see the seeds of a lot of this stuff getting planted in his writing that you would later find uh, would become very popular in stuff like David Icke and Secrets of the Federal Reserve and stuff like that. Uh,
1: you spend a lot of time looking at this stuff. And you say there, you find it interesting, although interesting isn't quite the, the word. Yeah. Um, how do you stay grounded when you look through all this stuff, especially when they're talking about something that is you know, a part of your identity? It's an existential threat to and has been in the past to to you know, your ancestors. How do you find yourself um, not despairing and uh, and getting lost? Yeah.
2: Uh, It's easier sometimes than others right now. It's particularly difficult, but you know, with a lot of this writing, it's, it's really bad. A a lot of this stuff is just really, really poorly written Hmm. and very difficult to read. So it's almost hard to get offended by it because it's so sloppy and so uh, recycling the same ideas over and over again. And if you've seen it once, you've kind of seen it a, a bunch of times. Um, you really treat it as a job, and of course, if you're writing a book and you know somebody's contracted with you to do this, it is a job. You know, you you log in at the beginning of the day, you do your work, you try to leave it there when you're done with it. Um, you know, I, I would try to really be done when I was done with it, and and say, okay, I'll come back to it the next day. And you find this with a lot of current events, you know, these mass shootings, and these horrible things going on. You know a lot of this stuff breaks at night, and I'm not gonna spend all night up on Twitter doom scrolling and and trying to figure out what my angle is on it. Um, there are enough people now covering this that I feel like people can take a break and and it will be written about it will not disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the mental health of disinformation journalists and 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 writers covering misinformation, it's very pressing and it's something we talk about a lot in in the conversations that I have with other people on this. and, you know, everybody has uh, coping mechanisms, usually that involve things that have nothing to do with any of this work. I also, you know, I have a family and I have young mm-hmm. kids, and so I I can't get too engrossed in what's going on in the rest of the world because my kids need stuff. And of course, my kids don't care about any of this stuff at all, which is the way it should be. And So I, I find that having a family, having hobbies, you know, things that are not involving this kind of work really do help keep me on the right track and not going down the rabbit hole myself.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that sounds uh, enormously healthy. Uh, I, I had to set myself a rule of no looking at Telegram before I get out of bed. because there, the there you go. No no uh,
2: no conspiracy theories in bed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I have to have that first cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, so we have
1: another question here from Nick G who, uh, who asks, how much do you think there's movement of people from secular conspiracy theories into anti-Semitism uh, versus anti-Semitic conspiracy sort of moving into the wider conspiracy theory landscape?
2: Oh, that's a great question. You know, with a lot of the earliest Rothschild conspiracy theories, it it was much more about wealth. You know, that first generation of really socialist uh, anti-Rothschild conspiracies was very much about economic concentration and not so much about religion. But I I find that the people who uh, spread anti-Semitic conspiracy theories while claiming they're not anti-Semitic, it's just about economic issues, they are often extremely anti-Semitic They're they're very much against the Jewish religion in general. They just they don't want to be thought of as anti-Semitic. They want Mm. to be thought of as sort of uh, trying to correct economic imbalances and things like that. But ultimately, it really does boil down to very kind of classic evangelical tropes. And of course, anti-Semitism, anti-Rothschild theories, QAnon, hugely popular in the evangelical community. There were there were real issues of pastors who really had to deal with these sort of outbreaks of conspiracy belief in their churches uh, because these things all fit together so well.
1: Yeah. And then you see that also with um, beliefs like uh, flat earth and even, even mm. um, uh, moon landing denial. Um, yeah. I, when I spent time around flat earth communities, I was always shocked at how much they would pin things uh, back to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, yeah. and I always referred to this as a, with, with a friend of mine who writes in these areas quite a lot as kind of the reverse Godwin law. You know, Godwin's law mm. on the internet: the longer an article yeah. goes on, eventually someone invokes uh, the Nazis. The reverse Godwin yeah. is um, the longer a conspiracy theory exists, eventually it will become anti-Semitic because you like that. Yeah, you're looking for answers as to who's hiding the truth about the flat Earth or the moon landing, and eventually right. you find who they are because there's right. centuries of people filling that answer in. Yeah. Um, let's see. We have another question here. This is an anonymous question. Um, have you done your own family tree? And and how far are you from being a baron?
2: <laughs> uh, well, I'm very far from being a baron. Um, I'm probably closer to a red baron frozen pizza than I am to a, being an actual baron. But um, when I started doing this, my dad sent me a family genealogy. And uh, somebody had my one of my great, great, great uncles, who I never met, um, hired a genealogist to basically put the whole family tree together. And one of the things that's written about in this book is the desire to find out if we were at all related to the Frankfurt Rothschilds, and we're not at all. The the uh, you know my my father's family came from Nordstetten, which was a, a village that's something like two hundred and fifty miles northeast of of Frankfurt. They, there's no real reason why they ever would have crossed paths. But that was a real desire to find out, kind of, were we connected? Was there any linkage to this famous name that had this aura of wealth and, and success to it? And of course, my father's family, they uh, a lot of them emigrated to the Midwest in the United States. So they went to Chicago, they went to Kansas City, they went to Davenport, Iowa, and they were very successful there. So there are a number of German Jewish families who have this last name, who've had success. They just haven't had these sort of like billionaire palaces, plot of land the size of Manhattan kind of success that those, that those Rothschilds have had.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, well, Nick, you asked a
1: question that I think fits in quite well with that. Um, have you ever felt you, that yourself or your family been in danger as a result of the the conspiracies that are tied to the Rothschild family because of your, your name happening to
2: be the same? I've never felt in danger. Um, I've definitely worked very hard to scrub information about me from the internet. Uh, which is a good practice anyway, Hmm. but um, I've never felt in particular like there was any danger of the last name imperiling me. Mostly what it is, is it sort of like comments, which is great now that I have a book about this out. But, you know, I just finished a book tour a few weeks ago and pretty much every hotel I checked into, uh, I would get some comment on like, oh, Rothschild, Uh, And and I would say, oh, well, you know, I actually have a book that just came out about it. And sometimes people would be really interested in it. I had one guy in D.C. uh, I was talking about the book and he said, oh, I've got a book for you that you that, you know, I think you should read. I I really recommend this. And he writes the title down on a piece of paper. I didn't have a chance to read it until I got up to my room. It was The Creature from Jekyll Island. The classic G. Edward Griffin conspiracy theory book that's extremely anti-Semitic Yikes. and also uh, ripped off from the Eustace Mullins book, Secrets of the Federal Reserve, which was, uh, you know, sponsored by Ezra Pound. I was like, I'm not going to say anything to the guy, but it's just funny how like you you talk about this stuff and people's true colors start to come out. Um, but definitely you get comments. My wife was traveling in, in Dallas a while back and she was at the tsa uh check-in she's on southwest airlines a very budget airline and the the tsa agent was like oh Rothschild, are you are you part of the family she's like no you know I, i'm in my group b boarding on southwest <laughs> airlines hoping that i you know don't get squeezed into a middle seat she's like oh good i'm, I'm glad you're not related because i've heard that they drink baby blood and, and you're like what do you say and she was like oh okay And just very quickly walks away. But it's like, yeah, people say stuff. People have just heard stuff. And I'm hoping that with this book, I can rebalance the scales a little bit of of sanity and skepticism rather than wild fish stories that get passed around the internet. Yeah, yeah. So you've
1: never been tempted to try and use the surname to get into like uh, Mar-a-Lago? I I have
2: not. I, you know, (laughs) others have, uh, and it's gone very well for them until it hasn't. (laughs) But you know the name really has an aura to it. It has a mystique. People know that that name is connected to money, and yeah. um, and it, it it's really easy to pull people in with it.
1: Um. So the question here from Andrew, who asks sort of more generally, more broadly, um, why are people so attracted to conspiracy theories like this? Is it too simplistic to say that some people's everyday lives are just too boring uh, otherwise? So this kind of adds spice and excitement.
2: I think that's a big part of it. I, I think a lot of the connection and attraction of these kind of global cabal conspiracy theories is that it's it, it gives you something to focus on that is not just your sort of boring everyday work and family life. Um, it's you know with something like QAnon, it's exciting to be part of something like this. With something like the Rothschilds, you're you feel like you're untangling these vast historical plots and conspiracy theories. It, it offers an explanation, it, it offers why things are the way they are and why why is finance so complicated? Why can't I get ahead? Why do the rich people yeah. get to do whatever they want? Well, it's the Jews, it's the Rothschilds, it's the cabal. And you know, a lot of times there is a cabal of rich people who are in charge of things. It's just like it's the banks and it's the billionaires and it's the tech bros. It's not the Jews. It's not the Rothschilds. It's like the people who are, you know, making it impossible for you to get a raise. You know, that's that's the cabal that's in charge of things. And they don't make any. They don't they don't hide at all.
1: Yeah. And it's that thing, I guess, that um, the real forces that control our lives are these big overarching things. But they're normally incredibly boring, incredibly mundane, incredibly bureaucratic and therefore quite hard to fight. Whereas you right. can, you can, if you can put a name on an enemy, you can rise up against them and those kinds of things, right. really. Igor yeah. um, asks a question kind of around that, I guess. Um, why do the stories always have to end up being, having the kind of weird details? Is it because of our love of storytelling that helps them spread? Or is these kind of, these strange details as a, an essential part of conspiracy theories generally?
2: They're really an essential part. And the the more detailed and the weirder a conspiracy theory is, the more durable it's going to be. You, you have... Um, Somebody like David Icke writes these books that are like 900 pages long and he puts one out every year and they're always the same book. They, they never tell any kind of different story. They're just the same story told with more detail, more machinations, more evil plotting. The more detail you add to something like this, the more uh, the more truthful it sounds. And it really helps if there is a grain of truth in some of the stories. That grain of truth then just gets loaded down with all of these irrelevant, unprovable, unnecessary details, but that's what gives it the veracity.
1: Yeah, I just had to look while you were talking there. I have got a copy of one of David Icke's books. If oh, the viewers at home haven't seen, they really are
2: oh, incredibly, yeah, they incredibly
1: are. thick, incredibly
2: yeah, dense. They're yeah. they like, um, I mean, you could like build a house out of some of these books. Yeah. And it's always the same thing. It's just the same book, except it's just longer.
1: Yeah, and with with more memes, more up to date memes, more memes, that, uh, yeah. Into it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Nick, you ask a question When it comes to like these strange kind of conspiracy theories, have you ever seen any overlap in the Rothschild conspiracy theories and the Nazara or Jezara theories? And do you think oh. um, there's any theories around you know Rothschild money being impacted in any way by this reset? You may need to explain what Nazara sure. and Jazara are for, sure. our, for our viewers. Yes,
2: so Nazara or uh, Gizara, um they're the same thing. Uh, Nassara is a basically a conspiracy theory that started in about the late 90s, that there was a secret law that was passed by the U.S. government that would uh, essentially uh, void all debt, um, bring us back to the gold standard, completely revolutionize the economic system, and make people who uh, had gotten access to these secret prosperity packets Essentially into instant millionaires. And it was um sort of a classic grift. Uh, you, you had Nasara gurus who had the secret information and you would send them money and they would send you newsletters or give you or you know, phone blasts or fax blasts with how Nasara was about to come true. So this theory has been going on for decades. It's gotten wrapped up into the Iraqi Dinar scam, which is another one of those classic Ponzi schemes selling you this. Pretty much worthless currency, and they hope that it's going to revalue and make you a millionaire. Um, There were there was talk of Nasara even a couple years ago when President Biden passed the CARES Act that this was going to be the the release of the Nasara Prosperity packets, and as part of this, there's going to be a global currency reset that's going to put all of the money of the world on a level playing field. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. It's Hmm. like High in the sky economics—it's not how any of this works. I've never now I've never seen specifically the Rothschilds kind of linked to Nasara, but I think the Rothschilds are seen as like one of the forces that's holding Nasara back. Like there's yes, this constant yeah. battle between the the white hats and the black hats, and the the black hats used nine eleven to destroy all of the paperwork for Nasara, and there's this secret war, and there's angels and aliens and like astral planes and galactic federations and it's just like crazy stuff but i think the rothschilds are lumped in with the sort of the black hats who would lose all of their power if suddenly everyone in the world were wealthy well if everyone in the world were wealthy money wouldn't mean anything so you know they would still be really powerful because they have all these other resources mm-hmm. so yeah i think the rothschilds are seen as some of the 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 dark forces who don't want you to be rich through nasara yeah i, I think
1: i think you're probably right i know that um so I, there's a it all got wrapped up into um, QAnon and also um, mm-hmm. the uh, the cryptocurrency kind of boom. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing, I went to a, a QAnon meeting in uh, Birmingham for put on by Charlie Ward, whose name you probably know as a QAnon influencer mm-hmm. here in the UK. Sure. And he, yeah. his whole grift on this was, Jazara is definitely coming, I'm in contact with the white hats who are doing this. And they've assured me that when they do the reset, they'll need to move on to a cryptocurrency in the meantime. <laughs> And then moving on to my cryptocurrency. So if you just buy my own cryptocurrency and you know, a lot of people believe it. Unbelievable. Uh, let's see. So Serdar's got another question here. Uh, are today's conspiracy theories shifting focus from specific families like the Rothschilds to be more vague, uh, unnamed entities like the cabal or globalists and these kind of terms that can be shifted around a little?
2: I think they go hand in hand. I think you've always had the um, these sort of evil organizations, you know, the Freemasons, the Catholics, uh, you know the Illuminati, the Hidden Hand, the Committee of Three Hundred. There's always going to be a sort of secret society, the Club of the Isles, the the Insiders, all these different groups, and they're they're sort of think tanks, the Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg Group. But at this at at the end of the day, somebody has to be sort of funding these things. Somebody has to be sort of the the, the string pullers of the string pullers. So again, you get you come back to the Rothschilds and. The very top of the pyramid, these these families that run the Illuminati, they're doing everything through all of these groups, that then filters down to the masses. But at the very, very top of the pyramid is always going to be somebody like the Rothschilds, like the Warburgs, like Soros. Now, you know, there's they go hand in hand together and you can add any level of detail that you want to them. Yeah, I mean, they need a name. Otherwise, that you, right. can't, you can't you
1: know, see who you're, who you're trying to... Right, like, you have oh, to name
2: so. the enemy. You have to yeah, you have absolutely. to give them a designation.
1: Okay, so we've got two more questions left. They're both from Igor, who I think I've not actually asked many of Igor's questions. Normally, Igor dominates the Q&A, so maybe <laughs> I'm addressing uh, the balance somewhat. But we're going to give him the last two questions. So the first of his questions uh, is, at some point, even the worst parts of the conspiracy theory community should theoretically grow tired of anti-Semitism. Um, do you think that will happen? And if so, who do you think will become the next universal bogeyman?
2: Well, it definitely cycles up and down. Uh, there are societal uh, sort of spasms of antisemitism. Certainly, we're having one now. You know, we certainly had one in the 1920s and 30s, and the 1890s, and, and on and on. So there are times when another outgroup becomes the scapegoat for society, usually because of some sort of political event. Certainly after 9-11, Islamophobia became, yeah. I, I think, much more of a going concern than anti-Semitism. I think in the early days of COVID, uh, anti-Asian sentiment b- became the same thing. But it definitely comes back to the Jews. You know, there's always, you know, there's always some, some sort of Jewish involvement. There's the dancing Israelis on 9-11. There's mm-hmm. the, you know, all the Rothschilds secretly invented COVID. So society definitely moves towards other groups, but they never completely move away from Jews.
1: Yeah. And I guess we also see um, a multi-layered thing. So uh, when it's um, immigration, well, there's, there's so many people of color coming into the country, but they're being brought here by the Jews. So it's like right. a two-layered thing. And, and similar with, you see, that the pink panic, the trans panic, these are all sure. being spread by the Jews in order to weaken the white race and various things sure. like that. So even mm-hmm, behind sure. one panic, there's a second panic, I guess. Um, yeah. And the last question from Igor here is, um, do you know who or what you're going to be investigating next? Uh, what's the What's the plan
2: after this? Well, I'm definitely uh, working on developing Jewish space lasers as a documentary. Hmm. I feel like there is a, a whole audience out there that um, will will appreciate this material in a more cinematic way. Uh, and also talking about kind of Jewish world domination tropes in general and how they play into these conspiracy theories. So that's the thing I'm working on right now. And um, hopefully have we'll have some good news about that soon.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll certainly look out for that. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for this. I've really, really enjoyed this. I'm sure all of the viewers have too. Uh, The book is Jewish Space Lasers. There's a link in the chat if you want to go out and uh, buy that. Thanks once again to Mike Rothschild.
0: Thank you. That was the Skeptics in
1: the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in
0: touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.